Al Jazeera Podcasts. This is the sound of a 911 call from a movie theater in a Florida suburb. Chad Olson and his wife were on a date when things took a turn with the man seated behind them. Chad was shot. Less than an hour later, he was dead. Just saw like a spark and saw him go down. The shooter was 71-year-old retired SWAT commander and police captain Curtis Reeves. Reeves claimed it was in self-defense, and he was found not guilty under a law called Stand Your Ground. Count one, murder in the second degree. The defendant is not guilty. Count two, aggravated battery. The defendant is not guilty. 38 states in the U.S. have laws that give people the right to use deadly force if they claim to be in fear of their lives. But critics call them shoot-first laws and say they're helping people get away with murder. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. My name is Amina Wahid. I'm a producer with Fault Lines. Fault Lines is a documentary news program on Al Jazeera English that looks at different stories around the Americas. A lot of our stories are related to U.S. policy or lack of U.S. policy. And the one that we're talking about today, the documentary that you produced, is called License to Kill. So tell me about the impetus behind this documentary. Where did it come from? You know, I think like a lot of people around the country and the world were watching these stories of deadly incidents where people were being killed over seemingly very minor interactions or in some cases, no interaction. In the space of a single week, four young unarmed Americans were shot, one of them fatally, over simple everyday mistakes. You know, somebody drives up on the wrong driveway, is shot and killed. Somebody rings the wrong doorbell, is shot. There's an altercation in a parking lot. Um, Somebody ends up shot and killed. You know, you name it, there was another case where a woman approached her neighbor, the neighbor shot her through the door. And in all of those incidents, the sort of common thread was that the person who had shot and killed the other individual claimed self-defense. And so we wanted to understand how... And Stand Your Ground was brought in again into the public consciousness and sort of the news cycle. Stand your ground statutes are controversial and more than half the country has one of those statutes in place. We wanted to understand the way they were written, the way they were being implemented that could be contributing to more of these kinds of altercations and deadly incidents. Stand your ground laws give immunity from prosecution for a person who believes they've been threatened with harm. The law allows people to use force, including deadly force, against, for example, an intruder in their home, in the belief that the force is necessary to prevent their own or their loved one's death or injury. So there are so many stories to use as examples out there. 
But your documentary focuses on the stories of two men, Chad Olson and William Hawkins. They lived in different states and their stories are very different. But what they have in common is that both men were shot and killed and that their killers are free. So let's start with Chad Olson's story in Florida. Who was he? What happened to him? Chad Olson was the husband, a father, and a veteran of the U.S. Navy who had gone on a long overdue date with his wife, Nicole Olson, to the movies. It was supposed to be a great day. It was just meant for us to kind of reconnect and have some time together. We go into the movie and it's empty. No one's there. At some point, a man comes in and sits directly behind us out of a whole empty movie theater. But they didn't make it past the previews. Um, uh, he was shot and killed by another moviegoer named Curtis Reeves, the retired SWAT commander and Tampa police captain, who was unhappy that uh, Chad Olson was using his cell phone during the previews. And in their first interaction, when he told him to put it away, he said, I'm just checking on my daughter. We had a toddler in daycare who, you know, was teething. And so he was just checking to make sure she was okay. But I, oh, he was just on his cell phone, like most people are during previews. But Reeves sort of was agitated and continued to tell him, put it away, put it away. At one point, he gets up and he gets the manager. And then he comes back and he sits back down. In the meantime, Chad Wilson has put his phone away. The way Chad Wilson's wife tells it, Curtis Reeves bends down and says, so now you put your phone away. So Chad Olson is frustrated at that point. He gets up and throws popcorn at Reeves, who immediately fires a pistol into his chest. Mm. Just unbelievable, because the situation had never got more than just kind of a, whatever, dude, what's your problem? You know, and then he's dead. And it just didn't make any sense how it escalated that quickly. You know, this was a case in which an interaction that could have been settled by Curtis Reeves could have gotten up. He could have changed seats if he was so bothered. He could have gone to a different theater. There's a number of things he could have done, but he wasn't obligated to do. And the end result being that Curtis Reeves was acquitted. So I want to talk about the law at the heart of this case. In the state of Florida, where Chad was, the stand-your-ground law came into effect in 2005. And it's based on the law principle of the Castle Doctrine, which gives people the right to defend themselves against an intruder in their homes. But Florida's stand-your-ground law goes one step further than the Castle Doctrine, and it allows people to defend themselves anywhere that they are legally entitled to be, like a movie theater, for example. Can you explain to us how this law worked in this case? Why it worked? (laughs) You know, um, that's a good question. People ask, why was this guy let off? Some people will say, oh, he was a police captain. Some people will say, um, oh, it was because he was a white man. Mm. Um, Some people will say, oh, it's the demographic of the jury, right? That was making the decision. I think that piece of it's actually pretty critical, right? Because at the heart of stand your ground laws is that it takes um, this sort of idea of self-defense beyond the private domain and into the public sphere. Mm. And the other piece of it is that 
you are allowed to use that deadly force if you are in reasonable fear for your life. What Stand Your Ground law did for self-defense was turn this into a very subjective legal concept, which is what you might make you in fear for your life is very different from what would make me in fear for my life. And then you basically convince a jury of your peers and depending where you are in the country, what the makeup of that jury is, that's going to probably indicate which way the decision is going to go in large part. The piece that was not brought into the case because it is it's essentially not permitted to bring into the case is Reeves' duty to retreat. Duty to retreat is de-escalation. If you can get yourself to safety, you don't have a right to exercise self-defense. David Laban is the president of the National Association of Prosecuting Attorneys. He told Amina and her team that Curtis Reeves walked free because the law allowed it. He threw popcorn at me. I was in fear. I shot him dead. We're done. I mean, that's what the law is. The jury applied the facts to the law, and he walked free. Most of these laws across most of the country, they have repealed the duty to retreat, which means that prosecutors, let alone police, couldn't even ask Reeves, hey, did you think about changing seats? Did you think, you know, maybe when he threw the popcorn, you could have, like, yelled for help or gotten up and left? Or maybe when you felt agitated, you could have done something else. You could have left the theater even. Um, Because throughout this case, Reeves kept saying that Chan was like a loose cannon. Mm. So if you're that in fear for your life, what are some other things you could have done to prevent it from getting escalating to the point that it, it did? The issue is that he didn't have a legal obligation to do any of that. Wow. So that's not even brought into the conversation. That's not even brought into the case. The man that took a life has turned into the victim. And my husband is now the aggressor. And that's not fair because that's not the truth. That's not how it was. The case between Curtis Reeves and Chad Olson involved two white men. But after the break, we hear about a case in which race likely played a key role in another stand-your-ground incident, this time in Texas. On the next Necessary Tomorrows, can humans and AI be kin? We meet Cree artist Archer Pachawis. I would like to take the AI back to the res and like go to ceremonies with it, right? And teach it about our spiritual protocols in the hopes of deepening our relationship. And theorist Douglas Rushkoff. The AI that we launched was capitalism back in the 12th and 13th century. That is the program that is running. And artificial intelligence is running inside capitalism. Indigenous AI, Unnecessary Tomorrows, a new podcast by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Amina, the cases that you reported on in this documentary are not limited to Florida. You also worked on a story out of Texas that involves Stand Your Ground. Tell me about that one. William Hawkins was a black houseless man in his 30s who was shot and killed outside a gas station in San Antonio, Texas. It was broad daylight. He seemed to have been asking this other individual for something. His family believes he was asking that individual for money. 
Um, and the man shot and killed him and walked away and didn't just walk over his body back into his truck, but he walked away legally with no criminal charges. He was not even arrested. Hmm. Um, police told us they didn't have reason to arrest him. He claimed self-defense and that was it. And for nearly two years, his name was not released to the public, let alone the family. There was surveillance footage of this shooting. I showed the video to prosecutors, and you can see the shooter. He takes some steps back as William is approaching him. And this one prosecutor I talked to in Florida that has, you know, tried many of these cases said, well, he took some steps back. And she said that counts as a duty to retreat, and he didn't have to. So the fact that he backed off is is a sign like, oh, he was scared. William Hawkins was dead within minutes. Len Nguyen, one of William's close family members, talked about how little they were told about the shooter. After he had shot and killed William, he went around the corner and actually called the police department, turned himself in. He was questioned, and then after stating his case that this was in self-defense, he was let go. That's all that we were told. The most chilling part for me is that he lies alone there for several minutes before paramedics arrive. People were saying that he puts his hands up, and then he eventually just puts them down. But he's alone for that time. Nobody comes up to him. Nobody approaches him. Nobody says, are you okay? Are there major differences between this case and the Florida case that you include in the documentary? What what are the parallels or the differences that you you and your team saw? I mean, I think the biggest difference is race. There is a class difference there, but you'll see in, in both those instances, I mean, both of those people were acquitted. In William Hawkins' case, what's interesting is that it does involve a Black man, Black victim. And as we know now, Almost two years later, two years later after this all happened, a white shooter. So that was revealed to us um, later on at the end of filming. And statistics from Stand Your Ground cases show us that there is a huge racial disparity between who gets charged in these cases and who gets off. And if this was the other way around, there's a less likelihood, based on research, that the Black individual would get a successful Stand Your Ground claim. So there's also, you know, the law is not being implemented equally. William's mother, Margaret Hawkins, said this was one of her biggest fears. And it has always been a fear of mine that something would happen to one of my sons because they were African-American. And my fear just happened to come true. So when we talk about this racial disparity in Stand Your Ground cases, I think a lot of people's minds probably go to an incident that happened in 2012 in Florida. Trayvon Martin, an unarmed Black teenager, was shot down by a white neighborhood watchman who claimed self-defense. George Zimmerman, a mixed-race, white, and Latino man, shot and killed Trayvon Martin, 
Now, his lawyers didn't actually invoke stand your ground during the trial, but it was a major part of the coverage. It was a law that wasn't that old in Florida at the time. And this case is what then sparked the Black Lives Matter movement. So when we look at the data, what role does race play in this type of violence? What do we know about whether or not there are disparities? I mean, based on the conversations that we had with folks, race is a major component of these cases. And the way these laws work historically in the U.S. is who is considered a law-abiding citizen and who is not. Black people are usually seen as violent, are usually seen as dangerous. This is former Florida prosecutor Janae Thomas, who spoke to Amina and her team. And white people are usually seen as law-abiding citizens who are doing things to protect their family, to protect themselves, and generally just trying to follow the laws and do the right thing. I mean, we have so many inequities within our criminal justice system when it comes to race as it is. This just, stand your ground laws just add a whole other layer to that. So Amina, your team spoke to a former Texas state senator named Jeff Wentworth, who wrote an early version of the stand your ground law in 2007. And your team asked him about who this law hurts and who it helps. What did he say? He said it wasn't meant to hurt anybody. When he talked to us, he said, I I pushed this legislation and I wrote this legislation because I thought it was outrageous that, you know, people who were watching TV in the comfort of their homes, like the 10 o'clock news, would have a duty to retreat if someone intruded. Hmm. So he thought, like, that's why I kind of pushed it forward. I don't know that it hurts anybody. It was designed to protect law-abiding citizens by eliminating the duty to retreat and allowing them to defend themselves and their families. He says, yeah, this wasn't meant to hurt anyone, but I think statistics have proven otherwise. We know that there are some local legislators who have tried in the past to get rid of stand-your-ground laws in states like Florida. For example, most recently, a state senator named Chevron Jones, he's a Democrat in Miami-Dade County in Florida, and he filed something called the Self-Defense Restoration Act, SB 96, in October 2023. Are there other attempts like this to eliminate these laws? And based on all the reporting you've done, do you even think that's possible? Will they go anywhere? I think there are efforts at local levels to repeal stand-your-ground laws. Talking to prosecutors in Florida, at least, um, I think that's an uphill battle. Stand-your-ground law in Florida seems to be pretty set. I don't think that it means that people can't try. It just means that it's sort of so much a part of the legal ethos of Florida Some version of stand-your-ground laws are now in more than half of U.S. states. Hmm. So it is, it's spreading rapidly. These laws became more popular and were passing more quickly after the death of Trayvon Martin. So, you know, I think there's something telling about that. After Trayvon Martin was killed, there was so much that came out about all of this, about stand-your-ground laws and the reality of who it hurts and who it protects. 
But these laws have only continued to proliferate. Those who are trying to repeal these laws, in some ways, it's admirable, some would say. It's also going to be a really tough uphill battle. And that's The Take. You can find The Fault Line's License to Kill documentary on aljazeera.com or on YouTube. It was hosted by someone that will sound very familiar to our listeners, our guest host, Natasha Del Toro. We'll pop a link in our show's description. This episode was produced by Zaina Bezer and Khadid Sultan, with Amy Walters, Chloe K. Lee, David Enders, Berenice Campana, Miranda Lynn, Sariel Khalili, Sonia Bagat, Ashish Malhotra, Nagin Oliayi, and me, Molika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs> 